Here in the United States, we don't usually put people in prison if they haven't committed a crime. But when it comes to immigrants, we become pretty comfortable with doing just that, especially after 9-11. And even if the immigrants are just kids. That's how Cecil Padilla Baquedano ended up in the back of a border patrol van in early July 2006. It wasn't what he was expecting when he had left Honduras. Cecil was 15 that summer, still just a teenager. But he was old enough to feel some responsibility for his mom and two younger brothers, who were also in the van with him. Border Patrol agents had loaded them up early in the morning. Now, it was the middle of the day, and they had not had anything to eat. We were tired. We didn't know where we were. We didn't know what was going on. We didn't know what was next. Cecil was a little scared, but mostly he was optimistic. The agents told him they were going somewhere with other families who had asked for asylum. But when the van finally stopped, Cecil realized he had the wrong idea. All he saw was a really tall fence. I was like, uh-oh, where are they bringing us? Walking into that was like, who who do they think we are? You know what I mean? That you are a murderer, uh, that you're a killer, that you're a criminal. That made me that made me feel scared, so scared that I was like, I'm are these guys bringing me here forever? He was at the T. Dunn Huddo Family Residential Center. Most people just call it Huddo. It's an immigration detention center in central Texas. Now, there's something important to understand here. Immigration detention, it's not supposed to be a punishment. It was only meant to be a way for the government to keep track of people while they were waiting for their immigration hearings. It's supposed to be more like a shelter than a jail. But sometimes, it can be hard to tell the difference between immigration detention and prison. Cecil and his family were taken into their rooms, which were basically like little jail cells. The guards put the rest of his family in one room, but they put Cecil in the room next door by himself. He asked the guard if he could join his family. I don't want to be by myself because I was I was already too tired. I was already too scared. I was I was already too everything, you know. But the guard said Cecil had to stay where he was. He couldn't see his family or talk to them. I remember the only thing doing it was knocking at the cinder block right next to my bed because my bed was right next to my mom's room. And I will knock and she will knock back. That was the only type of communication we had during nighttime. Cecil remembers spending a lot of time alone those first few days. He cried a lot. Otherwise, it's mostly a blur. But one moment really stands out. It was nighttime, and he was looking out the tiny window in his room. And all of a sudden, he saw fireworks lighting up the sky. Even if you have a sad day or whatever, if you see fireworks, you know, it kind of, it grabs your attention 100%. Those fireworks that night, like for for an hour, an hour and a half, it made me forget about well, what's going on. Cecil didn't know why there were fireworks. He didn't know anything about American holidays back then. But later, one of the guards told him that the fireworks were for the 4th of July, that they Americans celebrate freedom. It was the promise of that freedom that brought Cecil and his family to the United States from Honduras in the first place. But their timing could not have been worse. In the name of national security, 
The government had just begun expanding immigration detention, building new facilities, making more space. And someone had to fill those beds. This is Whole Nine Insecurity, a podcast about how immigrants like me became the enemy. I'm your host, Eric Andiola. In the last episode, we talked about how a hiring spree after 9-11 turned Border Patrol into the most corrupt law enforcement agency in the country. In today's episode, we're going to tell you the story of how the United States ended up with the largest immigration detention system in the world. A system built on national security fears and motivated by profits. And how people like Cecile and his family got caught in that system. Cecil grew up in Tegucigalpa, the capital of Honduras. He was the second oldest of four kids. He dressed up for church on Sundays and played soccer at school. But every once in a while, he could tell that his parents did not feel safe. I, I will think that my, my, my parents never wanted to tell me straight up how things were. Cecil's parents ran a school, teaching life skills to local kids to help them stay out of gangs. But in Honduras, trying to do good can get you in trouble. A police officer decided Cecil's family was actually part of the gang and started harassing them. He threatened them, followed them, and even fired his gun at their house and their school. Cecil's parents felt like they had to leave or be killed. They had family in Florida, so they made plans to ask for asylum in the U.S. I was like, uh-oh, it is happening. I'm leaving everything behind. I'm leaving my family behind. My grandma, leaving friends, leaving my home country, my, my neighborhood where I grew up. The family sold almost everything they owned to pay for their trip and left for Mexico in November 2005. To Cecil, it felt like they were going on a big adventure. But for his parents, it was really stressful. I always think how, I, how strong my dad was about bringing, bringing all of us at the same time. So it was pretty rough for my parents to, you know, make this type of decision, having, having six people of your family coming from one country to another. They started the trip with plenty of money. But by the time they got to Matamoros, across the border from Brownsville, Texas, they were totally broke. And when Cecil's dad asked people, what the best way was to enter the United States legally, people basically told him it was not an option. You can't just show up and be like, hey, we're coming from Honduras. You know, give us a break. Uh, let us in. So instead, Cecil's dad decided they would just cross the border and then figure it out. They had heard that La Migra treated women and children better than adult men. So Cecil was going to cross first with his mom and younger brothers. Then his dad and older sister would join them later. They found some smugglers, and then they waited. One morning, they called my dad, and they were like, hey, bring your family over. We're, we're going to cross them to the other side. And uh, they were waiting for us uh, at the edge of the river. Cecil was terrified. He didn't know how to swim, but he wanted to be brave for his mom and his little brothers. They were crying because they were only 10 years old, and they, don't, they knew they, they didn't know how to swim. So they were really scared. My mom was also really scared because she didn't know how to swim. We were pushing ourselves a little bit, try to swim a little bit with her feet or her hands, 
so that way we can float. The smugglers had given them garbage bags filled with air, homemade flotation devices. But while they were crossing, one of the twins started to panic. He was crying and yelling. And he was like, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. And he was telling my mom, 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 mom. And my mom will only tell him, papi, come on, can't do it. Vamos, vamos. You're, you're on top of a bag full with air. But that's all between you and getting drowned. Cecil doesn't know how long it took to get across, but it felt like a very long time. Eventually, they made it. They had the address for a shelter in Brownsville and stayed there for about a month and a half. Cecil's dad and sister eventually joined them. The family got an apartment and were all together again. In their story, it could have ended right there. They could have just stayed under the radar and lived undocumented in the United States. There are between 10 and 12 million undocumented people in America, maybe more. And while I can tell you that it's not the easiest way to live here, it is possible. But Cecile's parents didn't want to stay undocumented. They wanted asylum, legal status. And they had heard that people who turned themselves in were often just given a court date and released until their hearings. So that's what they decided to do. Cecile took the bus to the Border Patrol office in Brownsville with his mom and brothers. They told the first agent they found that they had crossed the border and wanted asylum. And he was like, oh, you guys are going back to your country. When he said that, I got so scared. Cecile's mom explained to the officer that she thought if they turned themselves in, they would be released. This guy told my mom right away, well, that lady, that thing, it's over. That's, that's not an option anymore. We, we don't do that anymore. I was like, oh, oh, this didn't go, this didn't go the way it was supposed to go. They weren't going to go back to their apartment that night or anytime soon. My name is Luz Varela and I am currently a legal assistant at Raices Children's Program. My job consists of helping the children who arrive to the border and they get detained and they get sent to a shelter. I talk to them about their rights, what's to come for them in terms of legal. And then we do an intake to see if they qualify for a legal relief here in the United States, so a visa. We deal with a lot of children that come from very rough places, a life of violence, from poverty, from traumas, and then they come in a journey that is really dangerous for them. And so when they arrive, they have no trust for us. But once we are able to build that trust with them and that relationship, it becomes so fulfilling to us and, and very important to them to have someone that they can trust. We want to help people that want a better life. And that's the only thing that we care about. The best way to support this work is to donate to Raices. Visit homelandandsecuritypodcast.com. While Cecile's parents were still making plans to leave Honduras, DHS got a new secretary. I'm pleased to announce my nomination of Judge Michael Chertoff to be the Secretary of Homeland Security. Chertoff was best known for co-writing the Patriot Act, the law that gave the government broad surveillance powers after 9-11. And when he came into the job at DHS, he said he was going to crack down on unauthorized immigration. The president believes, and I agree, that illegal immigration threatens our communities and our national security. The fact of the matter is that the ability of undocumented individuals to enter our country represents an obvious homeland security threat. A homeland security threat. 
like any undocumented immigrant might be a terrorist. That was the message. Chertoff's big idea was to end what the Bush administration called catch and release, the practice of taking down an immigrant's information and then releasing them until the court date. In other words, exactly what Cecil and his parents had expected would happen. President Bush announced that they would end the practice in November 2005, the same month Cecil and his family left Honduras. To help end catch and release, we need to increase the capacity in our detention facilities. Last month at the White House, I signed legislation supported by the members of the Arizona delegation that will increase the number of beds in our detention facilities. The bill gave DHS $90 million to add 2,000 more detention beds in the next year. That equals $45,000 per bed. And that was just the beginning. There would be a lot more money and a lot more beds to come. Chertoff and Bush talked about it as a way to make the country safer, to stop terrorists from getting into the U.S. But the people who ended up in those new beds were mostly just looking for a safer and better life. People like Cecil and his family, like me and mine, and so many others. Immigration detention is a pretty new idea. As recently as the 1980s, the government was holding fewer than 3,000 immigrants on any given day. Today, it's almost 20 times that, 50 to 60,000 people. And I think you really, you know, see this explosion uh, happen in conjunction with the rise of the for-profit prison industry. This is Bob Leibel. He's a former director of Grassroots Leadership, a nonprofit that works on ending mass incarceration and deportation. He spent the last 20 years thinking a lot about detention. It's not a uniquely American phenomenon, but I think the United States has elevated it in terms of the sheer numbers of people who are being detained to a greater degree than um, any other country in the world. There's about 200 immigration detention centers in the U.S., mostly run by private companies. The two biggest ones are Geo Group and CoreCivic, which used to be called Corrections Corporation of America. Together, they brought in more than a billion dollars in 2018. Now, they both built their first detention centers in the early 80s. But in the early days, immigration detention was not their main business. They mostly ran private prisons and jails. Um, but by the late 1990s, both Geo Group and Corrections Corporation of America were in deep financial trouble. The companies had built a lot of new prisons, assuming that there would be demand for more beds. But after a bunch of scandals and prison breaks, government officials started questioning whether private prisons were such a good idea. The industry seemed to be headed for a certain collapse. And then along comes 9-11. Suddenly, there was a whole new group of people who could be locked up. The private prison industry smelled an opportunity. Back then, one of the major players in the private prison industry was called Cornell Companies. And just a few weeks after 9-11, their CEO, Steve Logan, told investors about the promise of immigration detention. We don't have a tape recording of it, but we do have the transcript. Here's one of my colleagues reading from it. It's clear that since September 11, there's a heightened focus on detention, both on the borders and in the U.S. What we are seeing is an increased scrutiny of tightening up the borders, so that's a positive for our business. The federal business is the best business for us. It's the most consistent business for us. And the events of September 11 is increasing that level of business. 
Logan was right. 9-11 would end up being very, very good business for the private prison industry. The attacks made people afraid of foreigners, and immigration detention offered a solution, locking them up. It turned out it was easy to monetize fear. There were years in the Bush administration and the Obama administration where Homeland Security would come to Congress with a budget and Congress would say, no, that's not the budget we're going to fund. We're going to give you more money. It became this kind of bipartisan uh, money suck, right? You see an agency that is given endless amounts of money with very little, if any, accountability. And you see a dramatic expansion to the system of detention and deportation. Private immigration detention was an industry with infinite growth potential. How many undocumented immigrants would have to be put in detention before government officials decided the country was officially safe? Depending on which state immigrants were held in, the government spent somewhere between $50 and $165 per person per night in detention. So there was an enormous financial incentive to grow the system. Private prison companies started turning empty prison buildings into immigration detention centers, and they built new detention facilities too. Bob Leibel watched the detention boom happen right in his backyard. Texas was ground zero for the expansion of immigration detention uh, and the incarceration of immigrants up and down I-35 from Laredo all the way to Waco. There are detention centers um, that really dot the highway. That stretch of the highway has a nickname, Detention Alley. In some cases, the companies built whole new detention centers without even having contracts. They were that confident in Congress. They knew the government would keep throwing money at them. It was easy to get money for national security. But the private prison companies also spend a lot of money on hiring lobbyists. Um, lobbying ICE, lobbying the U.S. Marshals, lobbying the Bureau of Prisons, and hiring people directly out of those agencies, hiring former heads of the Bureau of Prisons, of, of the U.S. Marshals, former top officials in Immigration and Customs Enforcement, to be their officials uh, who are in charge of government relations and in charge of other uh, aspects of policy. So, you know, you really see this connection, this deep intersection between the private prison industry and ICE uh, in ways that sometimes you really wonder who's actually calling the shots. And that's a really important question. Is that government acting in the best interest of the people? Or is it just protecting private companies and their bottom line? Even though ICE is in charge of immigration detention, more than 60% of its detention facilities are privately run. In the mid-2000s, new detention centers were popping up left and right. But at the time, the building spree didn't get a lot of attention. Most of the new detention centers were in rural areas, out of sight and out of mind. And that was not by accident. Leibel remembers reading through internal ICE documents that were sent anonymously to his colleague during a lawsuit against the Huddle Detention Center. In them, the government was debating where the new facility should go. And they had a pro and cons list for each of these sites. Uh, on the cons list was an item for Huddo that said, this facility is near Austin, which has an empowered immigrant rights community and legal services. So essentially saying one of the reasons that we shouldn't put facilities, you know, near a place like Austin is that there are lawyers who will visit and there were people who will care. They did end up building HUD up pretty close to Austin, but it's the exception. 
most detention centers are hours away from any major city. If the idea was to make advocating for immigrants harder, it worked. Immigration law isn't like criminal law. Criminal defendants can get lawyers for free. But in immigration detention, you have to find your own attorney and figure out how to pay for them too, which is really hard to do from the inside of an immigration detention center. There are organizations like Raices that provide free legal services, but we can't help everyone, which is not to say we don't try. I had a Honda CRV, a silver Honda CRV, went through two of them, and I substantially lived in my car. This is Jonathan Ryan. We met him in episode one. Today, he's the president and CEO of Raices. But back in 2005, he was fresh out of law school, just in time for the detention boom. Which is how he ended up spending his early years as an attorney, driving around remote parts of Texas. But I kept, I kept my little Epson 4-in-1 in the back and uh, had one of those Road Warrior clothes bars hanging up in the back seat with your, your suit for court and, and all that. These were little tricks, ways to overcome some of the barriers the government had created. But as Jonathan kept spending his days in the car, driving to detention centers, it was hard not to feel like the system was designed to be unbeatable. So we've created an entire department in our government whose purpose is to make sure that people who are eligible for protection under our laws don't get it. It's the wall. You know, the president, the current president talks so much about his wall. This is the wall. And it is extremely effective because though the justice is there, you can't get to it. It's not accessible. It's not there for you. Even though it was built for you, we've built a moat around this kingdom. Uh, and that moat uh, is the Department of Homeland Security and its detention regime. My name is Sarah Valdez. I'm the co-director of the children's program at Raices. Everyone's seen the images of the kids at the border after they've been separated from their parents and then thrown in a cold cement cell. Those are our kids. Those are the kids that the Raices Children's Program represents. After everything they've been through, they have to go through an immigration court process, and we help advocate for them, fight for them, defend them so that they can stay here in this country legally and be safe. I have clients that are very young. One of my youngest clients right now is seven. And when I go into court with her, it's me and a seven-year-old. Her feet don't touch the floor. We really feel like we're a part of these kids' lives and we take pride in their accomplishments and we get excited for them when something good happens in their case. We get excited for them when they tell us good news, like they did really well on their math test or when they talk about their favorite teacher at school. Our work depends on you. Donate at homelandandsecuritypodcast.com. The first detention center where Jonathan Ryan spent a lot of time was the South Texas Ice Processing Center. It's about an hour southwest of San Antonio, in the tiny town of Pearsall, which is what most people call it, Pearsall. It opened in May of 2005, and at the time, it was the largest detention center ever built. It started with a little more than a thousand beds and almost doubled within two years. Jonathan remembers his first trip there. It was a two and a half hour drive from his office in Austin. And what he saw when he arrived helped him to see the true scope of what his clients were facing. Pearsall was huge. But for Jonathan, the scariest part was how easy it was for him to imagine a hundred other facilities just like it 
popping up elsewhere in the country. And frankly, one of the reasons that I'm still here today doing what I do is that I saw when I went into that one detention center that I was not walking into the largest detention center that the country was ever going to see. I was walking into an alpha model. I was walking into the template. Jonathan hoped he was wrong, but he wasn't. Pearsall was only the country's largest detention center for about a year. Then, a new, larger facility opened, just a few hours away in Raymondville, Texas. At the same time as the government was building all these facilities, it was also expanding its criteria for who could end up in detention. In May 2006, about a month before Cecil and his family turned themselves into Border Patrol, ICE opened its first large-scale detention center meant for families just outside of Austin, the hood of family residential facility. Before then, the U.S. only had one immigrant family detention center. It was in Pennsylvania and had room for less than 100 people, and it was rarely full. Opening Huddle added 500 more beds, specifically for parents and children. Cecil and his family walked right into that new reality. If they had turned themselves in just a few months earlier, they probably would have done some paperwork and then left the facility. But instead, the Border Patrol agent tried to intimidate Cecile's mom into self-deporting. He told her that if she didn't, she'd be stuck in detention for a long time. But, you know, my mom knew that it was either that or going back to Honduras to, to the worst. So my mom didn't get scared and she was like, I want to file a petition for asylum. So into detention they went. Inside Hutto, the days passed slowly. The food was bad, and they rarely got to go outside. Cecile's eyes got so used to the artificial lighting that they hurt when he went in the sun. He spent a lot of his time in his cell, staring out the small window at the parking lot. When I would see the uh, the security guards go home, go from, from the compound to their car, you know... I always imagine I was like, oh, man, I wish I could take the car and go away from here, go far from here, and never come back. Everyone was miserable and scared. You know, being a kid and seeing people crying all the time, seeing people kind of scared of their situation, seeing people that they don't know what their future will be, uh, that was pretty sad because you, you, you're, you're pretty much feeling the same thing. Cecile wonders sometimes if they would be stuck in Huddle forever. For much of the 1980s, most people were in immigration detention for 10 days or less. But by the mid-2000s, that number had climbed to almost 40 days. The longer the immigrants were detained, the more that the companies running the detention facilities could charge. Cecile and his family had already been in Huddle for well over a month when Jonathan Ryan showed up. It was his first time in a family detention center. You know, if all of you have as a hammer, everything is a nail. So when a private prison company puts families in a residential center, guess what? <laughs> it looks a lot like a jail, and they treat them a lot like prisoners. And that's what you see when you walk in there. Jonathan had come to Huddo to give a presentation to the people in detention about their rights. But then he met Cecil. And Jonathan felt like the whole family had a good asylum case, so he offered to be their lawyer. 
The first thing Jonathan wanted was to get Cecil and his family out of Hodo. To do that, he had to ask a judge for a bond. It's the same idea as in the criminal justice system. You pay a bond, and then you get out of detention until your court date. The immigration judge set the bond at $2,500. Cecil's dad figured out a way to get the money together. And next thing you know is that uh, around 11 a.m. in the morning, they were kicking us out of Hato. After two and a half months in detention, Cecil, his mom, and two brothers were released into the extreme heat of a September day in Texas. But you know what? I enjoyed it. It was better than being in a cold cell. You know, I was I was so glad to be out of there. I was so, so glad. Cecil tried to forget that experience. He and his family don't talk about Hutto. He doesn't tell his friends about it. Today, Cecil is 29 years old. He has a family. He runs a contracting company, and he has legal status, too. But as much as Cecil would like to forget Hutto, he can't wipe it from his memory. In fact, he drives pretty close to it sometimes for work. Yeah, I'm always all over town. And, you know, I feel like I have a magnet that if I get too close to to T-Down Hutto, that magnet will bring me in. And I don't... <laughs> It's just a weird thought that I have, so I don't. So I don't feel like no, 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 not even close. Hutto is still open, but he no longer houses families. In response to a lawsuit, the Obama administration converted it to a women's detention center in 2009. But the facilities are still being built, even today, and every new bed has to be filled with someone like Cecil, someone who never would have been detained in the first place before we mix immigration with national security and profits. As we move further from the fear and anxieties of 9-11, the standard for who is dangerous to the country gets lower and lower. Libel says if you look at the history of anti-immigrant groups in the U.S., you find all kinds of excuses for keeping foreigners out. They drain the economy, they steal jobs, they're terrorists. But the idea that really stuck? The immigrants are criminals which is the, the age-old way that you dehumanize people of color in this country, right? You turn them into criminals. It's about smearing immigrants and, you know, by proxy brown people, right, with um, this label of criminality. Every day, we feed thousands of vulnerable people to a giant detention machine, we were told it was built to keep us safe. But most of these centers are holding people whose only crime is wanting to live in this country. And that doesn't make anyone safer. There's a steady stream of people to lock up in detention centers because it's really hard to get into the U.S. legally. As we've talked about in previous episodes, President Bush wanted to change that. Before 9-11, he wanted to pass immigration reform. We have a chance to build a century of the Americas in which all our people, North and South, find the blessings of liberty. After the 9-11 attacks, reform seemed like it might be a lost cause. But Bush actually started talking about it again just a few years later. He wanted a temporary worker program, a way for undocumented immigrants already in the country to stay and for people wanting to come in to do so legally. In fact, his decision to end catch and release was part of that plan. 
The idea was to get tough, really tough, on undocumented immigration, and then ask Congress to approve the reform plan, to let immigrants who followed the rules stay and work. Chertoff, the DHS secretary, broke it down in a Senate committee hearing. He said there were three main parts to this approach. Requires tough enforcement at the border, tough interior enforcement, and a temporary worker program to deal with a very real draw that um, the need for labor is exerting on migration across the border. We've begun to plan it and we've begun to implement it. But as we know today, tough enforcement happened, but immigration reform failed. And soon, President Obama would take the same approach with pretty much the same result. Even more aggressive enforcement, but no real change for legal pathways into the country. In the next episode, we will hear how Obama's tenure in the White House started with a message of hope, but ended up turning immigrants even more into the enemy. There was this narrative of good immigrants versus bad immigrants, and that the administration would focus on deporting the supposedly bad ones. And of course, it's not nearly as black and white as this, right? There were a lot of people caught up in the gray area. That's next time on Homeland Insecurity. Homeland Insecurity is produced by Alexandra Garreton and executive produced by Jonathan Ryan and Brian Carmel for Raices. Special thanks to Stephanie Mayjoyce. And I'm your host, Eric Andiola. If you're moved by what you've learned in this podcast, then we need you now more than ever to get involved in the fight for migrant justice. Go to RaicesTexas.org to learn more. And one more thing. We're getting a lot of really disturbing comments on Apple and other platforms. Stuff like, you're here illegally. When you read these, you can tell it's from people who didn't even listen to the podcast. They just want to attack me because I'm an immigrant. The best way to help us fight these kinds of attacks is to rate the podcast and leave a review. If you listen this far, we absolutely want to hear from you.